do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Fifty-nine or sixty or something like that. For me, that's freezing. I grew up up north uh, in Massachusetts, and it was always like in the winter. It would get to negative. Like I, I went to a football game, an NFL playoff game, one time, and it was negative three degrees. And now I'm just not used to that anymore. And so if it gets under like seventy or so, I think I like the cold. I'm always like, oh, I can't wait till it's cold, and then it is cold, and I just hate every second of it. So maybe I have different blood now than when I lived there, um, but definitely. <clears throat> definitely don't enjoy it anymore. So with that being said, I'm assuming you guys look at the title before you click the episode so you have somewhat of an idea of what's going to happen here. Uh, but we're going to be getting into what I think are some of the most prominent challenges given by skeptics. And when I say prominent, I mean they seem like good arguments. Um, they're questions that, I mean, it's, it's pretty reasonable to ask from the outside, but there are actually very good responses to these questions from a Christian standpoint. Um, so I think there it's crucial that we're prepared to respond and, and to be prepared, you always have to be preparing. It's something we have to currently be doing. And if you're a New Year's resolution, I always want to say revolution, New Year's revolution, hopefully not. But if you're a New Year's resolution person, um, I think a challenge you should give yourself this year, in addition to reading your Bible daily, is research and study all that you can. I mean, it's just an incredible time to live. You can study while you're driving. You can study while you're walking. You can study pretty much anywhere almost. I mean, some people can even wear like an AirPod at work. Uh, there's just, there's so much opportunity to study. Do it all that you can. If there's a topic, think about a topic right now that you don't know a lot about. Like think about some topic where if somebody asked you a question, you'd be like, oh my goodness, what do I say? I don't know. And now like think about how if you were to listen to some videos on that, I mean, if you were to go spend 10 minutes studying this, I bet you'd know 10 times more than you do right now. You could take this topic and know a whole lot more about it and no longer have it be this sort of like weak, vulnerable spot, not only for interacting with others, but even for yourself. Uh, I mean, we talk about apologetics all the time as a defense of the gospel, a defense of the truth uh, of Christianity to others, but it's also a defense to yourself because we if we don't believe what we're trying to defend, then, I mean, what's the point of even defending it? So um, some of these topics that we're going to talk about today may be things that you've thought about and that you said, yeah, I have heard someone mention that and I just kind of pretended it didn't happen. Uh, so hopefully that'll interest you. Very, very excited to get into that. Uh, before we do, I just wanted to mention two or three very quick things. Number one, hit follow if you haven't. Uh, so hit the follow button and then hit the notify button. We're going to have a ton of new stuff coming up this year, which I'm going to mention here in a second. Uh, but make sure you're following the show. And this is especially important now because A, we're going to be starting our Q&A back up at the end of every month, the last Friday of every month it'll be released. So send in your questions now and throughout the month to information at apologetics.org. Um, just if you're thinking of any kind of question faith-related at all, don't be embarrassed. Just send it in. We won't say your name if you don't want us to. Um, but send that to information at apologetics.org and we'll respond to your question on the last Friday of every month. Um, and secondly, I'm going to be starting a new segment here uh, pretty soon. I'm not going to tell you what it is, and that's because I don't want to have to get permission from the ministry. It's easier when you just put something out and and just go with it, and if they make you take it down, that, that's a lot less likely than them just saying, no, that sounds stupid, so I'm just going to do it. Um, and if everyone hates it, we'll take it down and just burn it forever. But that's going to be coming up pretty soon as well. I'm super pumped for that. Um, obviously, we have a ton of stuff coming up with Apologetics Inc., the ministry that this podcast is a part of. Uh, there's a banquet coming up in a few months. There's a huge event we're going to be doing in the Tampa area. We'll probably have uh, our president, Mike Sherrard, or somebody on to talk about that pretty soon. But super excited for that. It's going to be awesome. Uh, we've done it in the past, and I think it's going to be better than ever this year, where we have speakers go all over different churches and places to speak about uh, difficult topics. So start looking out for that stuff. There's just a lot happening. And of course, we're going to be starting the Universe Next Door on YouTube pretty soon here. Everything's in the works right now. Uh, it's a lot of fun, a lot more stuff than I thought there was, um, I guess, leading up to this. I thought it was just like you turn on a cheap camera and you just go from there. But 
no, there's a lot to it. And it's actually really cool to learn. I'm super excited to start. So all this stuff is coming up. It's going to be an awesome year. Uh, I just can't wait for it. So make sure you're following the show. So let's start with the um, this isn't necessarily the top five, and these are in par- no particular order, but these are five skeptic challenges that I think the common person wouldn't be prepared for and that I've noticed the common person doesn't really know how to respond to. Now, you may you may know how to respond to all of these or one of these or zero of these. I don't know. Maybe there's a couple of these where you're like, yeah, that's just my area. I'm ready to go. Um, that's great. You can still learn more about that. But um, most people I've noticed uh, just probably haven't, thought a ton about how to respond to these topics. And just before we get into them, again, they're in no particular order, uh, but I wanted to share sort of my motivation for doing this. Number one, obviously my motivation is that you know how to respond to things. That goes without saying. But number two, when I was a new believer, I think I was I was probably like 21 or 22 when this happened. Um, I got saved when I was 20 and right off the bat, I was super into apologetics. And I remember at one point, um, discovering, I think it was the book by Richard Dawkins, the the God delusion. Uh, and at that point, I thought like every atheist is just super smart. They all know what they're doing. Everything they write is going to be difficult to respond to. Oh my goodness! And I remember this book, the God delusion, came out, and I was like, I remember looking at it. I bu- I either bought it or I got it from a library and probably never returned it. I don't I don't remember the situation, but I had the book, and I remember looking at it and thinking like, if I read this, is it going to ruin my faith? am I going to get through this or get through part of it and say, wow, I don't think I'm going to be a Christian anymore? Well, when I was first saved, I thought that was a good possibility. And so I kind of put it off for a while. And then I remember deciding that if Christianity isn't true, I'd like to know now. I'd, I'd prefer to know now than like a 20 years from now. So if it's not true, I want to know now. And I think having that attitude was really freeing for me because it, it kind of made me think, you know what? I can look at any argument. I can look at anything thrown at Christianity. I can look at anything brought up in in response or to challenge Christianity. um, And I can look at it objectively. And and this is going to be one of the points, so I'll say more in it in a few minutes, but I can look at it objectively and I can think about it and I can say, well, if this isn't true, then I'd like to know. And if this argument is flawed and actually Christianity is true, then I would certainly like to know that too. And it just so happens that every argument I've ever encountered, every topic I've ever encountered um, that was proposed to be a challenge to Christianity or, or a difficulty for uh, the Christians staying consistent with their beliefs and with their theology, every time it actually ends up, uh, it, it ends up making me appreciate the Bible even more and having even stronger faith. And when I say every time, I mean like every single time. Um, of course, I have questions. I have things I'm always looking into. I have sometimes I'll watch a video and I'll be like, "Huh, I hadn't really thought about that." And then I'll research it, and I just have an entirely different, I guess, thought process on it. And I'm a lot more confident to think about it and talk about it. Um, and of course, studying does that. Looking into and digging into things will do that for you. You have to actually do the work. I mean, the the, the thoughts and arguments are not just going to float into your head. Okay, they didn't float into William Lane Craig's head. They didn't float into R.C. Sproul's head. They don't float into Lee Strobel's head. They, they don't float in anybody's head. People work very, very hard to be prepared to defend the faith really well. And the harder you work, the more confident you are. Um, it's like if you've ever noticed uh, Gordon Ramsay, for example, the guy who's all, oh, what are you doing, you idiot sandwich? He's always like, yelling at people and stuff. But when people get in his face, if you notice, he doesn't back away. He doesn't like cover himself. He just stands there confidently. Do you know why? Because he's like a black belt in Taekwondo. I, maybe it's not Taekwondo. I don't know what it is. But he's a black belt in something. In other words, because he's prepared physically, because he's built his confidence, he doesn't have to be afraid of people getting in his face because he knows if they go to throw some sloppy punch at him, he'll probably just block it and put him in a headlock, do whatever he wants, okay? So he's confident because he's prepared for that moment. So when the moment comes, he's not cowering. He's not thinking about where he can hide. He's not saying, oh my gosh, I should have done my homework. Like... He's able to handle these encounters because he's so confident and because he's so prepared. Um, and it's the same for us with the faith. The more prepared you are, the more confident you're going to be. And that means asking yourself the difficult questions. That means saying, huh, I haven't thought about that. I'm not going to put it off or be afraid of it. I'm going to look into it. Okay. And, and number two, it means when I have a view, can I actually demonstrate that view to myself? Can I show myself that my view is true? Whatever it may be. So in my case, 
getting the God delusion or whatever it was at the time, it was actually freeing for me. And I saw that number one, now that book in particular is just really a poorly written book. The, the arguments aren't good. It's sloppy. It's, it's, I don't want to be insulting, but it's kind of a dumb book. It's like, it's not very well, it's not very well put together. There are much better uh, arguments from atheists that, that I think are more convincing than the God delusion. But that's what that did for me. It just, it was freeing for me to think, I don't have to have this super biased, unrealistic view of the Bible. I can have an objective, um, an objective view in the Bible and, and be confident in it. So hopefully uh, today these responses will help you with that. And so let's start with uh, the first one here. And as we go through these, keep in mind, I think it's always, it's always better to teach people how to think about things and how to sort of look at and determine things. And it is to just say, here's the answer. Now go ahead. You know, the understanding is more important or as important as just the conclusion because you have to know how you arrive there. And of course that takes being intentional. So um, with that being said, we're going to go through five skeptic challenges that I think most people are not prepared for. Number one is the differences in the gospels and how most people will put these are the contradictions in the gospels. Now, again, the first thing you should always do when somebody makes a charge against Christianity, especially something specific like, why are there so many contradictions in the Gospels, are you should ask them, like what? What are the contradictions you're thinking of? Uh, and this isn't just to catch them in some trap. It's to start a conversation and it's to put it's to put the burden of proof on them and it's to make them think uh, and do the talking here. They should be showing what it is that they're bringing against Christianity rather than the other way around. So let's say they bring up um, the resurrection uh, appearances to the women. They'll say, well, John says he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And then when you read Luke, you see a different account. It says there was Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James and, and others. And it's like, well, which one is it? Was it just Mary there or was it all of them? Were they all there? Well, sometimes these can be reconciled just by looking right at the text. You can say, well, in John, it doesn't say only Mary Magdalene was there. Mary Magdalene was the one who was highlighted here or more specifically spotlighted here, but it doesn't say it was only Mary Magdalene. Now, you could try to make the argument that if John said only Mary Magdalene was there and Luke said this number of women was there along with the other accounts, if it said that specifically, then you could try to make the argument that there's a contradiction that needs to be reconciled because John would say only one was there and then the other accounts would say many were there or multiple were there. The problem is it doesn't say that. So in this case, this is one way to reconcile quote-unquote contradictions or more specifically differences in the Gospels. You could go to John and say, well, it doesn't say that only Mary Magdalene was there. And so this would be an example of just being able to go to the text and say, well, there actually is no contradiction here. Where is the contradiction? Um, I'll give you another example of this. Let me pull up Matthew chapter 2. And this is another one that I've heard uh, Barn Urban point out. I think he he did a um, an interview with Cosmic Skeptic. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, but they were doing uh, an interview. One was interviewing the other. I don't remember which was which. But Barn Urban brings up this point that no Christian's ever been able to answer. <clears throat> and uh, so he goes to Matthew 2 and he reads starting in verse 13 where it says, when they had gone, this is this is after the birth of Jesus, now, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So, um, what Bart Ehrman will do is he'll show this passage here, and then he'll contrast it with the narrative in Luke chapter 2, where in Luke 2, Jesus is born, um, and then he goes off to uh, the temple to be the, to do the purification rituals and all of that. Um, and he, he shows all of these different details in Matthew cha- or in Luke chapter 2 that you don't see in Matthew chapter 2. And he'll say, well, this is a contradiction because in Matthew chapter 2, you have uh, them immediately getting up and going to Egypt. So he'll say this is a contradiction because in Matthew, they immediately get up and go to Egypt. In Luke, they don't do that. They go and do all these other things. So he'll say this is a contradiction. However, there is no contradiction here, number one, because the word immediately is never used. 
So though Bart Ehrman will say that the word immediately is used in Matthew chapter 2, it isn't actually used. So number two, and Bart Ehrman should know this one because he's debated Mike Lacona several times. One of those debates was like a seven-hour extravaganza, okay? So he should know this. Um, I, I know for a fact he probably does know this, and there are many times Bart Ehrman will leave out uh, important details or he'll sort of uh, manipulate some of the details in, in, in a way that it makes it sound like something that actually isn't in the text. I've seen him do it many times. So I tend to think he probably does it intentionally. I don't know. And I can't prove that. Uh, I can prove he's done it other times. But Mike Lacona, who I've had on the show a couple times, awesome guy, awesome scholar. I'll link one of the episodes below in the description I've done with him. Um, just just life-changing work. He really has done incredible work on the Gospels. One of the things he's pointed out um, is that there are there, there's such thing as compressing a narrative. <clears throat> and this is done in the Gospels, and this is done outside of the Gospels. And this is actually very, very important to understanding differences in the Gospels. So what you have in the Gospels are not just biographies. Okay, if you were to ask the average person or scholar what, what genre the Gospels would be going in, um, it would be, well, they're biographies. But they're not just biographies. Okay? And what I mean by that is they're different than biographies that you would read in 2023 or in 1950 or in 1800 or whatever. These are a different category of biographies. What the Gospels fall into, uh, the, the category they fall into, is ancient Greco-Roman biographies. Okay, so it's important that we understand that because these biographies are written differently than biographies today. Now, there are many things we still do today that they did back then. There, I would say most of it would mirror today in some ways, but there are a lot of things they did differently. One of them, in this case, and this is one that we still do, to, do today, uh, but this one would be called compression. And this is when you are compressing... Um, a narrative, you're, you're, you're making it shorter and leaving out details that don't really matter and don't need to be there. And so in Matthew's case, he didn't need to say all of the details that are involved. What Matthew wanted to do is he wanted to show the Jewish people that Jewish ha- uh, that Jesus had fulfilled the prophecy in Hosea, uh, which he does in verse 15. Jesus, pr- he fulfills this prophecy in Hosea by coming out of Egypt. Um, And just a 10 second little nutshell thing here. Moses also came out of Egypt, okay? And he brought the people out of Egypt. God used him to do that. Well, now Jesus is the one who's bringing his people out of bondage to sin. The people who have been in bondage to sin for thousands and thousands of years, the true Messiah, the true Moses has now come to lead them out of sin into the promised land of eternal life. Uh, So all that to say, Matthew wants to point out here, most likely, to his Jewish audience that Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy given uh, about the Messiah and Hosea. Well, Luke, on the other hand, is more concerned with the details. I mean, everybody knows that Luke and Acts are just filled with details. Uh, Luke was a doctor. He, his writing style, the style of Greek he wrote in, was much more polished than the other gospel writers. Uh, he was obviously very intelligent, very meticulous. And so he's more concerned with the details. So you have Matthew sort of just compressing the narrative, and then you have Luke uh, drawing the narrative out and showing all these details that took place. But Matthew didn't have a reason to do that. So not only is there not a contradiction directly in the text— But even in the bigger picture, you can see what they're doing by looking at other Greco-Roman biographies that do the exact same thing. They would compress narratives. They would squeeze them to not include all the details. And oftentimes, Plutarch, for example, who was one of the most prominent uh, Greco-Roman biography writers, and they were called lives at the time because they were about the people's life. They weren't called biographies at the time. Uh, But Plutarch is known for writing the vast majority of of biographies we have or lives that we have from that time period, like the vast, vast majority of them. So scholars can look to him. This is what Mike Lacona has done. Uh, They can look to him and see the things that he did. And they can also look at compositional textbooks from that sort of that rough period. And they can see things that they were taught to do when writing. Uh, And the, the gospels don't violate any of those, um, permissions that are given in those textbooks or that Plutarch or or others would do. Of course, Jewish people weren't writing biographies at the time for the most part, so you have to look outside of the Jewish culture to find these biographies. But but all that to say, what he's doing is he's compressing a narrative here. He's leaving the details out of a narrative. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Um, now, in the case we mentioned with Mary Magdalene, what you have there is what's referred to as spotlighting. And spotlighting probably sounds pretty self-explanatory. It's when you spotlight one specific person or thing um, in the narrative. <clears throat> so if you'll notice in the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene is spotlighted throughout the book. She's kind of like uh, a side character, part of the main theme kind of person in the book of John. Um, and that's not true elsewhere. So in the book of John, she's spotlighted. So of course, once you get to the climax, when you get to the resurrection, of course, Mary Magdalene there is going to be spotlighted as the person who's specifically mentioned as being at the tomb. And so this is another thing that they would often do. They would spotlight a specific character um, throughout the biography or throughout a story. And so this is another one of those cases um, where number one, I mean, go do some research right now and find the biggest contradictions in the Gospels. Uh, there aren't actually any true true contradictions, but uh, look up what what would be referred to as a contradiction, and you're going to say, oh, wow, that's it? I thought it was going to be a lot stronger than that. Uh, you're probably going to be able to answer them without doing any real research, um, but what I've found is when you do dig into these differences, when you do try to figure out what's, what, what's at the bottom of this, you're probably going to just strengthen your faith. And that's what happened to me in this case. If you read uh, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels by Mike Lacona, you're going to find that they actually have a purpose for the differences. It's not like we're just finding these differences and trying to patch and band-aid things together so Christians don't look bad. It's quite the opposite. Okay, We find these differences, and any time there are differences, there's a reason for those differences. It's just like any time you find something weird in the Bible, there's a reason it's there. It wasn't weird to them. Well, it's the same thing here. When you find differences in the Gospels, there's a reason for those differences. There's something they're doing that they did during that time period in the Greco-Roman biographical period. So in actuality, you should be more concerned if things in the Gospels didn't mirror that time period and didn't mirror what the other biography writers were doing at that time. This is what the authors of the Bible knew what to do. This is this is what they knew how to do because this is what they were taught. If they wrote if they wrote uh, biographies like people wrote them hundreds and hundreds of years later, well, that would just be evidence that the Gospels aren't from their own time period. Uh, so you should expect to see things that are a little weird, and when you dig into them, you say, "Oh, now I get it. This is why they do that." Um, so I think number one, differences in the Gospels is something a skeptic challenge that we should be prepared for. And that actually is, is it's not just going to be a band-aid solution. It's going to help you understand the gospels better. And you're going to come out saying, wow, they're even more authentic than I already thought. Number two, um, in this one, I've spent a lot more time on, I want to do a series on this. I've been, I've had kind of a series in the works for a while, but it's going to be a lot of work and I want to have a lot of guests on, but it's something that's, that's just going to take a lot of time. It's in the works, but Number two is, I guess the big picture is pretty much anything having to do with Genesis 1 through 11. So how many times have you heard somebody point out, Noah's Ark is dumb, it's stupid, it's silly, I can't believe anybody would actually believe it happened. Oh, you believe God picked up a handful of dirt and created two people? How stupid. Wow, you believe that the earth was created in six days? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Oh, the Tower of Babel, that's how languages came about. Well, that's stupid. These are the kind of things you hear all the time. And... In my mind, there's basically two things going on here. Number one, I think that the church and the average Christian often doesn't have a good answer for these things, and they themselves deep down might think there's not a good answer. And so what happens is they just kind of suppress it, and they don't talk about it, and they put it off, and they hope nobody ever brings it up again. Number two, and this is the other part of my thought process, I actually think there's a lot of things about Genesis 1 through 11 that the average Christian misunderstands. And I think the reason they misunderstand them is that they're afraid to look into what was going on in the surrounding cultures at the time. If I told you that pretty much everything in Genesis 1 through 11 is in some way paralleled in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, and many of them being demonstrated to be older than the the Genesis 1 through 11 writings, would that make you uncomfortable? Well, then prepare to be uncomfortable. Much like those differences in the Gospels, when you actually start digging into 
um, ancient Near Eastern culture in their writings. And you start actually looking and examining the similarities between stories in Genesis 1 through 11 and elsewhere, even Psalm 74 and elsewhere, you, you get the same kind of idea that what they're writing, they're writing for a purpose. So your question should not be, I've always been told to look at the Genesis 1 through 11 stories in this specific way, and I can't depart from that no matter what. I can't even look into anything else or I'm sinning against myself or something like that, or God's going to be angry at me. I think we need to leave that behind. I think what you need to do is you need to approach Genesis 1 through 11 and you need to say, okay, why are they writing what they're writing? Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the stories in Genesis 1 through 11 aren't true, okay? Don't don't accuse me of that. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is I'm pretty strongly convinced that they're written as polemics. Now, what is a polemic? A polemic, A, is something that's written in response. Now, in order for something to be written in response, what does that mean? That means there already has to be a story in place. Um, so, now let's say the... Uh, the Israelites are writing about the Nephilim or about uh, the Ark narrative or about the Tower of Babel in response to Babylonians who they were held captive to, um, or, or at least that it was edited during the period of Babylon. Okay, well, what they're doing when they write these polemics is they're writing them in response, but they're also writing them to show our God is greater than your God. For example, when you read Psalm 74, um, let me just pull up Psalm 74 real quick. And Psalm 74 is really the chapter that opened my eyes to uh, biblical polemics and their purpose because it is undeniable. In my opinion, if you deny that Psalm 74 here that I'm going to read is a polemic against um, against Babylon, then I don't think you're being objective. I think that what you're doing is you're taking a bias that you have, a very specific bent you have toward the Bible, and you're just refusing to re-examine your views in any way, shape, or form. Because I think this is undeniable, in my opinion. Um, so starting in verse 13, it says, It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. So in this section, what do we see? Now, you may not know this, but what we see is a very clear polemic to the origin story of Marduk. Okay, Marduk, who was one of the, the Babylonian gods, quote-unquote gods, he was known for all of these things. He was known for defeating the Leviathan, for splitting the, the, the Leviathan and making the sea. And so what the Israelites are doing here is they're writing a polemic and they're saying Marduk sucks and our God is better. They're not literally saying Yahweh split open a sea monster and created the universe out of it. Okay, What they're saying is our God is the one who's the creator. They're taking this known story and now they're writing a polemic. They're using this for their polemic. They're writing against it and they're using it to show our God is greater than your God. And you're going to see this throughout Genesis 1 through 11. You're going to see that the Egyptian god Ra picks up a handful of dirt and breathes life into it. You're going to see, uh, let's say, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, or, or and there are others too. There are actually flood narratives from all over the world. But you're going to see flood narratives very, very, very similar to the Hebrew account, where you even have the same birds leaving the boat. Well, why is that? Okay, so what I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you have to agree with all my conclusions. And again, I'm going to do a series on this at some point here. I'm getting to it. Uh, there's, there's just a lot to it. And I'm not saying that because of this polemic view, uh, that means that Noah's Ark didn't happen or the flood didn't happen. Uh, I'm not saying that the Tower of Babel or that the Nephilim event didn't happen or that God didn't actually create people out of a handful of dirt. I'm not saying that just because these are polemics, they're not true. They could still literally be true in many ways. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is doing this research of the ancient Near Eastern culture, the literature that we have available, that they didn't have available when they formed a lot of the views that you hold. Augustine didn't have access to, to manuscripts from ancient Near Eastern culture. He couldn't even read Hebrew or Greek. Now, I'm, I'm not disrespecting Augustine. He's, I mean, just an incredible church figure. Um, but what I'm saying is they didn't have access to what we have access to now. And sometimes we're afraid 
to disagree with people who have been with the Lord for hundreds and hundreds of years now and did great work. Um, and we can build off their work, but that doesn't mean they're right about everything. So what I would encourage for Genesis 1 through 11 is to dig into these areas of ancient Near Eastern culture and see what the Bible has in common with them. Because my number one goal is not believing something I've always believed. My number one goal in regard to scripture is I want to know why what was written was written. I want to know what was in the head of the ancient Israelite when they wrote scripture. I want to know why they wrote the flood narrative. I want to know why they wrote the Tower of Babel. I want to know why they wrote Deuteronomy 32. And I want to know what they meant by these things. Because what I want to believe is what they meant, not just what I wanted them to have meant. So Genesis 1 through 11 is one of those that um, that I think skeptics will bring up. And because we're not prepared we are, uh, we're sort of embarrassed to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't know how to defend it. And so we kind of resort to this, well, God can do anything. And that's true. Actually, I do believe God can do anything. So I'm not saying that's a bad argument or a bad answer, but it's not going to be sufficient for somebody who's done some of the research. Um, and it's really exciting when you get in a discussion with somebody who's done a lot of research in ancient Near Eastern culture, and you're actually able to respond to some of their objections or some of their questions or some of their concerns. And, and you can kind of see a light bulb go off where it's like, oh, you know, I've never heard that. That kind of makes sense. Um, it's it's really exciting and rewarding to be able to do that. So hopefully uh, I'm going to get the series going pretty soon here and that'll help you with that. But I would just suggest doing all the research you can in the meantime. Number three, um, and this one has to do with, with a lot, uh, it has a lot to do with the resurrection and really have to do Testament. And that's that the Apostle Paul, um, when he actually encounters the risen Jesus is just having like an ecstatic vision. Okay. Either he's dehydrated and he hallucinates in the desert. He falls off his donkey and hits his head and has some kind of crazy spiritual experience. Um, I've seen an increasing number of people bring up this sort of point in, I guess if you could narrow it down, it would be like, why is the apostle Paul viewed differently than somebody like Joseph Smith? Okay. Joseph Smith claims to have seen Jesus in the forest Um, Joseph Smith has all of these new ideas that he wants to introduce. And, you know, because he had this, this vision, people trust him because he claims to be able to, um, read out of a hat and interpret scripture. People trust him. Why is the apostle Paul any different? Well, if the new Testament just contained, uh, an account from the apostle Paul, I think this would be a much stronger argument. But Paul is surrounded by other apostles. And in first Corinthians 15, 500 others maybe 500 men. It could be even more than 500 total, including women and children. But at the very least, 500 other people in addition to the apostles and to James, he's mentioned among them. Now, I've heard people recently, there was actually a video I was thinking about doing a a response video kind of thing too. Um, But the guy was saying like, he he thinks this is actually, um, this is something that atheists should focus more on. He's saying that uh, Paul mentioning himself among these other apostles and everything is actually a really poor point. It's actually something that they should hone in on and say, listen, Paul's considering his ecstatic heavenly vision um, the same as everybody else's literal physical uh, vision of Jesus. But here's the problem with that. Paul didn't have to touch Jesus in order to have a physical vision of him. In fact, a vision isn't just auditory. A vision always means seeing something. And when you go back to Genesis 15 and you have the word appear to Abram, well, in my opinion, that's Jesus. That's the pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, in, in Colossians 1, we see that he is the, visi- the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the visible God. Um, so in Genesis 15, we have uh, the word appear to Abram in a vision, and then the vision takes him outside, or the word, rather, the word takes him outside. Okay, that's described as a vision, but it's clearly physical. Uh, In Jeremiah 1, you have the word appearing to Jeremiah, and then what happens? The word reaches out its hand and touches his mouth. Okay, that's a vision, but clearly physical. In 1 Samuel 3, you have the word appearing to Samuel, and and, and the Lord, the word stands there, stands there and calls out to Samuel, and Samuel responds. Well, this is a vision, but it's physical. So there's no reason to think Paul's is any different. And if somebody's going to make the argument that, um, you know, Paul had this special heavenly vision, well, all the other apostles would have had a special heavenly vision too. 
because the other apostles who touched Jesus, who had the, the, the risen Christ appear to them, well, it was the same Jesus. He's still in a glorified body. In fact, some of them didn't even recognize him. The women didn't recognize him. Mary Magdalene thought he was a gardener. Uh, we're going to get into that in another day too. You have uh, the apostles, when, when Jesus comes and cooks the fish, they don't recognize him. Now, yeah, they could just be far away. It could be foggy. Sure, there, there are reasons you could, you could try to give. But uh, at the end of the day, they didn't recognize him at first. And it seems like there's a reason for that. And I think the reason, commonly given, that I, I, I'm on board with is that he's in his glorified body. So it wouldn't be any different when Paul sees him. What, he's not two Jesuses. There's only one Jesus. Okay, The actual real Jesus became man, died on a cross, raised from the dead in a glorified body. So the same Jesus that appeared to them is the same Jesus that appeared to Paul, who is the same Jesus that we will see in glory one day. So I think that's a weak argument to, to bring up the vision thing. Um, but we have to be prepared for this because people will try to uh, uh, compare the Apostle Paul with Joseph Smith even of that. So somebody could say, okay, well, here are the options. Either A, he hallucinated or something along those lines, and he was just, he actually really believed he saw Jesus. Okay, number two, he's lying. He's lying. He didn't really see the risen Jesus. He's just lying about it, and that that's that. Well, let's start with number two. Why would Paul lie about seeing the risen Jesus? Now, somebody could say, well, he wanted authority. If you read, especially 2 Corinthians, if you read Galatians, you can see Paul appealing to his, his power and authority as an apostle. Uh, so maybe he was, maybe he was uh, you know, kind of power hungry and he wanted to, he just wanted to have some authority. Maybe that was his motivation for lying and this was a good opportunity for him. Okay, well... Uh, if you read the rest of the description of Paul being an apostle in 2 Corinthians 10, you see that it was pretty miserable. Okay, you see that everywhere. You see that apostle, apostles are, are, are least of all. You see that he's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by snakes. He's been beaten. He's been tortured. There's a point where he's literally stoned and they leave him there because they think he's dead. And he goes back into the city to check on those that he's ministering to when he wakes up. Okay, so Paul doesn't have uh, much motivation to lie here. Why would he lie about seeing the risen Jesus? That power didn't, wasn't very rewarding. Okay, the power to be beaten and hated by everybody, the power to be dragged before governors and before the Sanhedrin and before all these others uh, and just humiliated and tortured. Like, yeah, that sounds like, that sounds great. Uh, no, it doesn't. Okay, you have to assign a motivation if you're going to accuse him of just lying. Um, and especially when all the other apostles were on board with him, when it took them some time to sort of, to, to actually believe who's, he's who he said he was. Um, but then they're on board with him and they're doing ministry with him and he's traveling all over the place spreading the gospel. Uh, when, when previously he was a very devoted Jewish believer, he was a Pharisee. He would have had huge chunks of scripture memorized. He probably had a future in front of him. Clearly he had authority in the Pharisaical movement. I mean, when Stephen is stoned in, in Acts chapter 7, whose, whose feet are they laying their cloaks at? Paul's. And that means that he's the one giving the approval. He already had authority. So there's no reason for him to go and, and want authority with people who are less significant and are poor. And now the guys who are already respecting him are going to hate him. There's no motivation for him to do that. Now, as for the first objection, maybe he just hallucinated and he actually believes it, even though it was just a hallucination. Well, number one, he had witnesses with him. Let's look at Acts chapter 9 quickly. Um, let's start in verse 3. This is when Paul's going through. Um, he, he now has permission to go and arrest the believers in Damascus. <clears throat> so he's on the famous road to Damascus here. In verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, uh, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So what you see here is that Paul has witnesses. There were men traveling with him, and they were speechless. It says they heard the sound, but didn't see anyone. So they hear something going on here and they can't see everything and they're, they're speechless. They're in awe. They're amazed. 
Now, if you're going to propose that Paul just had a hallucination, well, then what happened here? Why are the witnesses thrown off? Why are they shaken up? Why are they speechless? If you're going to say it's some kind of combination of the first two, he had a hallucination and lied. I don't know why he'd do that, but let's just say back to him lying if he lied. Well, now you have these witnesses lying too. Why would they do that? Why would the witnesses be motivated to lie about this? Um, there's just there's there's not enough evidence to compare Paul to somebody like Joseph Smith, who went out into the wilderness by himself, claims he has this vision of Jesus and angels and other things, um, and comes back and tells everybody. And by the way, there's another thing Joseph Smith um, sort of didn't have going for him in opposition to Paul. Joseph Smith's family had a history of claiming to see visions. So his parents and grandparents did the same thing. So this was either something Joseph Smith was taught or it was something that uh, that rubbed off on him that he observed and continued to do. Or maybe they had some kind of disorder. I don't know. Um, who knows? It's crazy stuff. Mormonism is way crazier than people think, by the way. It's like, I had a professor who used to say that the three craziest religions are number one, Scientology, number two, Scientology, and number three, Mormonism. Crazier than you think. Uh, we'll probably get into that at some point too. I'd like to anyway. Now, let's say somehow you could still argue that either Paul had a hallucination or um, or he was lying for whatever reason, okay? Whatever the reason is. Let's say that is the case. Well, now you still have to go and try to discount everything else where you have another witness. Remember, Paul didn't write the book of Acts. Luke did. And Luke traveled with Paul starting about halfway through the book. So now what you have to do is you have to go discount another witness who Paul apparently got on board with the lie who's recording miracles that Paul's doing right before his eyes. So he just happens to have superpowers. So he's a liar and he has superpowers where he can heal people, where he can raise the dead, where he can do all kinds of things. Okay, so you have to think through these things. Some of these, some of these accusations are embarrassingly bad. Okay, and, and we we hear them and we say, oh my gosh, how do I respond to that? When really, these are just poor, not even well thought through arguments. There are good arguments. Out, well, I wouldn't say good arguments, but there are at least well thought through arguments about uh, out there against the resurrection that you might have to respond to. This is not one of them. Um, and this is why the majority of scholars, if you've listened to Harry, Gary Habermas, we've had him on too a couple times, uh, but Gary Habermas does his minimal facts arguments. I think there's six minimal facts he uses and those are the minimal facts that people, even who, who are not Christian scholars, secular scholars, they're facts that they would agree, agree on in regard to the resurrection, such as Jesus being crucified under Pontius Pilate, there being an empty tomb. Well, of those six facts, the testimony of the Apostle Paul is one of them. Okay, some angry guy can't just get on YouTube and disprove that in eight minutes. Um, there's a reason that secular scholars say, well, we have to do something with Paul because he has a pretty valid testimony here and it needs an explanation. Um, there's definitely a reason for that. So keep that stuff in mind, but being prepared to defend Paul, that's a very strong argument for the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, his testimony, his witness, his turning his life completely around and giving it to those he hated and, and Christ who he hated, um, that's a very strong argument for the resurrection among many more. <clears throat> Number four, um, and this one can come in many ways, shapes, and forms, and this is a common one, but I thought I'd mention it anyway because a lot of the time we aren't prepared, but that's the problem of evil. Now, this one's probably the most common of what we're talking about here, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but you want to be prepared with like a few arguments for the problem of evil. And when we say the problem of evil, that would include suffering. Okay, so you often, you often see it phrased as the problem of evil and suffering. So this could, be, this could be phrased different ways. It could be somebody is saying, well, how could this or that thing happen to a family member? How could that happen and God exists? I mean, how could he let that happen? Um, it could be, why does God allow there to be evil in the world and these wars, let's say in the Middle East or in Ukraine or, um, you know, so the, there's a lot of emotion usually involved with this, but the thrust of it is how could blank happen under God's control? I think that's pretty much a summary of what the charge usually is or what the challenge usually is. Now, again, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this. But a few ways to think about this are, A, what is your view on God's sovereignty? Do you know your view on God's sovereignty? Do you believe that God forces everything to happen? He makes everything happen regardless of what anybody wants to happen. Um, that includes salvation. That includes catastrophe. That includes anything. God makes everything happen. 
I guess you could say forcefully. Is that your view? Or B, is your view that you have what is called freedom of the will? Meaning, even if God doesn't desire for you to do something, you still have the ability to do it because God gave you that ability through his sovereignty. In a nutshell, those are at least two ways to look at God's sovereignty. <clears throat> and then there's a combination, sort of, of those ways. Um, but whatever it is, do you know your view of God's sovereignty? Okay, if so, you need to rely on that view when answering this question. If you believe that God forces everything to happen that's going to happen, well, then you don't have a ton of options here. Your options are like, well, I mean, everybody's a sinner, so God can make whatever he wants happen to them. Okay, that's, I mean, I guess that's consistent in some ways, but it doesn't sound very biblical. Um, Another option is, well, evil happens because of the fall, because of sin. God doesn't desire for evil to happen, but he will ultimately use it for his purpose. Now, of course, in this case, that means that God didn't create evil. That means there was a creation where evil did not exist. Uh, Now, your next question might be, well, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because evil isn't actually a substance or a thing. What evil is, some will say evil is the lack of good. I actually, I don't think that's a sufficient definition. I would go further and say that evil is the privation of good. Um, So if you think about a tree that is rotting, the rotting is the, the privation of that tree. If you think about metal that's rusting, rust isn't actually a thing. Rust is the privation of a thing. It is the privation of that metal. I mean, you could go on and on with examples like this. It's just like, like when we think of hot and cold, um, cold isn't actually a thing. It's just the lack of heat. And it's the same idea here. Uh, from a philosophical standpoint, just from a direct standpoint, God didn't create evil. If your question is, okay, he didn't create it, but why does he allow it? Well, I mean, you could probably think of five million answers for that. Um, But it has to center around your view of God's sovereignty. God allows it, in my view, because he allows us to do things that he doesn't desire for us to do. Remember, God desires for all to be saved. Well, are all going to be saved? Scripture seems to tell us no. Um, So we can do things that God does not desire for us to do on a literal level. Does he desire for me to go out and sin? No, but he still allows me to do it. So you could narrow it down to the options being, A, he doesn't allow anybody to sin and therefore doesn't allow evil, but nobody has freedom. Or B, he allows freedom, but then there has to be the possibility uh, in the opportunity for evil. So if you actually believe you have the ability to love God freely, then you also have the ability not to love him. Right there, that's evil. Okay, God has to give you the option to do evil, uh, not to do right, if he is going to actually give you freedom of the will. If he's actually going to give you the opportunity to decide to love him, um, he has to be able to give you the opportunity not to, or else you don't actually truly love him. You're just being forced to, to cooperate with him. So when having a discussion with somebody about the problem of evil and suffering, number one, Keep in mind your view on um, God's sovereignty. Number two, think about what evil actually is and isn't. And number three, I haven't said this one yet, but probably use a lot of compassion. Okay, there are times where, of course, you never want to give a wrong answer. Um, Truth does not come, or, or comfort does not come before truth. Truth always comes before comfort when you have both then of course that's the best. And sometimes the truth itself will comfort people, either now or eventually, but we cannot put comfort before truth. That was a common critique of the movie The Shack. I mean, it was, in terms of just a movie, it was well done. Um, It was comforting for a lot of people. It made them feel good. It made them leave kind of weeping and saying, oh, God is so good. The problem, it, it wasn't theologically accurate. So what happened is the writers of The Shack, the book and the movie, they put comfort before truth. And as a result, people actually end up worse off because they're comforted by something about God that isn't true. And eventually when they figure out this thing isn't true, it could cause their view of God to be tarnished or to crumble. So we don't put comfort before truth. We put truth before comfort. But at the same time, um, I would focus on being as compassionate as you can. I would focus on listening and I would focus on not overloading them with information, especially if somebody's asking you a question about something personal that has happened to them. Um, I would focus on being compassionate, but not compromising the truth at the same time. And number five, last but not least, this one's a little more broad. Um, 
It's not necessarily a, a specific topic, but number five of the skeptic challenges you probably aren't prepared for is not viewing the Bible objectively. Now, we touched on this with the differences in the Gospels topic, with the Genesis 1-11 through 11 topic, with the Apostle Paul topic, um, but viewing the Bible objectively is important. When we're going to say to people, um, let's say somebody denies the resurrection in the historicity of it, and you respond to them and you say, well, if you viewed the documents we have, the Gospels, the New Testament, and out, documents outside of Scripture, if you viewed those the same way you viewed other ancient Roman documents, you would never doubt the resurrection. Do you doubt that Julius Caesar lived? Do you di- uh, doubt that Tiberius Caesar lived? Do you doubt that Alexander the Great lived? Well, what about all the details we have about their lives? Do you doubt those? Well, those came from hundreds of years after uh, they actually lived for the most part. The sources are way later than the gospel sources are. So you can't actually look at this objectively and deny the resurrection entirely. What you're doing is you're looking at the gospels with a bias because you don't want to believe in miracles. So let's say you say that to them and then they turn to you and say, okay, well, maybe you do the same thing. Maybe because you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, which pause here, by the way, I do 100%. Um, If they say, if you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that means you are going to look at it with a bias and you can't be objective about it. So if there's something in there that seems contradictory or doesn't make sense, um, or if your interpretation seems off, you might be unwilling to change it because of your bias. Well, if somebody says that to you, what are you prepared to say? Do you try your best to read the Bible and study the Bible objectively? Not based on what you've always been taught to believe, uh, not based on what's most comfortable for you to believe, not based on this idea that if I don't hold this specific view that's commonly held, I must be doing something wrong. Um, Do you look at the Bible objectively so that you could say to somebody you look at it objectively, or do you just look at it entirely biased and are you afraid to face it for what it is, which by the way, is much better than we imagine that it is, <laughs> okay? Every time you learn something difficult about God, you end up knowing more about him and therefore knowing him more than you did previously. It always ends up better when you learn what's true about God and what's true about his word. So again, back to what we said at the beginning of the episode, one of our goals this year should be to study the Bible, A, objectively, but B, period. Just study it. Just listen to videos, read everything you can, uh, think about things that you have a hard time with and that you don't understand and start studying them and start digging into them. Um, do this all the time. You have so much opportunity to do it. And it's the kind of thing that you're, you're continually putting deposits into your mind and into your heart and into your soul. You're continually making deposits so that you can take those out whenever you need them. It, you're not going to remember every single thing you ever learned, of course. But the more you read, the more you listen, the more you're going to know and the more your view is going to be shaped. And it's going to be your view and not just somebody else's view. It's not just going to be, well, I've always liked this scholar, so I have to agree with everything he says. Uh, Or this is what my family's church had always said and I can't disagree with the pastor or whatever it might be. The more you research and study, the more you're going to shape your own view. So that would be my hope and prayer, not only for myself, but for all of our listeners this year. You all who are already here and for new listeners that we have coming, which God willing, uh, will just continue to happen. So with all that being said, I hope this has been helpful. Remember, if you have a question throughout the month, send it to information at apologetics.org. If you have a question right now, send it right now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Send it to information at apologetics.org. And don't forget to hit follow. Otherwise, we'll see you back here next week, Tuesday night at 5 p.m. on the Universe Next Door. And I hope you have a blessed year. 